0: Welcome to, Welcome to the 34 Circe, 34 Circe, Circe Salon. Welcome, Welcome to, to, to
1: Make Matriarchy Great make Again. Make matriarchy, 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 matriarchy. matriarchy Again.
2: We are going to be able to interact
0: And welcome, everyone, to the 34 Circe Salon. This is the Make Matriarchy Great Again channel. I am Sean Marlon Newcomb.
1: And I am Dawn Sam Alden. Welcome, Yay. welcome, everyone. My goodness, I'm out of practice.
0: I know. It does feel, I mean, it's, uh, for the listeners, it's been a little bit of uh, time between the last uh, two podcasts that we've recorded, but it is so nice to be back. And what a way to come back, because we're going to have some fun today. Absolutely. Uh, Exploring the Ancient World, because we have returning guests, someone we love talking to. Let's welcome everyone, Max Stashu. Welcome, Max. (laughs) Thank you. The adoring crowd. So what will we speak of today, Max?
2: Well, you had asked me to talk about a couple of the chapters in my forthcoming book, which actually books now. We've got book one and book two instead of one volume. Uh, due to volume. So uh, we're going to talk about Pythias, the Oracle of Delphi. And, you know, depending, we can go into the other oracular women as well. And you were also interested in the Maenads.
1: Maenads, Dionysiacs. Yeah, yeah. 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 The sort of in interior space uh, women and exterior space women. Well, I guess that's one way of talking about it. <laughs> but I, i'm not totally
2: confident we're going to have time to talk about both but we'll see where it goes you let's know give it away. guide yeah.
0: me <laughs> this is definitely a sweet spot for dawn i know that so um so yeah let's just jump into it
2: all right yeah so the pythias that this means snake woman in ancient greece greece and there is in some of the oldest iterations of the story there is a female dragon who's guardian of the spring there's a spring that that comes out of the mountain mount parnassus you may have heard that name right is uh, is looming above delphi which is down the hill from the mountain and this this spring comes out of the mountain and then it emerges again down below so there's the Cassotis spring and what's the other one i'm forgetting at the moment but they have these two different names same watercourse basically and this is the purifying spring that the oracular woman dips her coat into her her robes or she drinks from it, you know, maybe she would have bathed in it in very ancient times. And there's this process of prophecy. She enters into an ecstatic state. And of course, we know snakes are very closely correlated with transformational states, with altered states of consciousness, with many, many meanings, of course, to the serpent. But this naming of the oracular woman as the Pythia is very, very ancient. And that water association is important there as well. So there's a lot of angles to this, the Oracle of Delphi, but she's famous for her prophetic ecstasy, entering into a state of spiritual union. And who with is a whole topic we'll come to because first (laughs) it's the earth (laughs) goddess, Gay or Gaia. And then later on there's an Apollonian takeover of the shrine by a, a later male God. But, uh, this, this altered states, I and mean, this is something that we're all really interested in, is accessing the deeper, the deeper self, the, the union with the, with the all, with the whole, and the ability to know things through that guidance. Inspiration, breathing in, the, literally the meaning of inspiration. So they're inspired. And one of the theories, there's a lot of theories about, like, how exactly did they enter into this state of consciousness? The ancients, one of the things that ancient sources talk about is mephitic vapors, which are gases coming from underground that they thought in some way influenced the Pythia, allowed her, enabled her to enter into these deep states of consciousness. So in the 1990s, two European geologists went to Delphi and they discovered that there are two earthquake faults that intersect right where the half underground aduton, the Adaiton, as we'd say in English, the the holy of holies, the most sacred and secret part of the entire complex. They intersect right there. And they came up with a theory. This is all limestone. This, these mountains that when there were earthquakes, the crushing of the limestone released ethylene gas. And ethylene is kind of a sweet smelling gas that makes you high. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Right. So they're, they're kind of substantiating because, you know, later scholars were kind of like, well, you know, the ancients had this superstition about the mephitic gases and stuff. And they actually provided a scientific explanation for how actually changed consciousness could result from these kinds of events. And there are also stories about if, if you get enough ethylene gas in your system, it can kill you. So small doses, much much fun, but large doses may be fatal. Right. So there are accounts by Plutarch, who was a priest at Delphi. A lot of people don't know. And so a good source on Delphi, some, a lot of the things that he has to say. And he talks about apithia going into convulsions and dying. Oh, You know, and so, you know, he's a very late source, like first century, I think, Roman Mm -hmm. times. Mm -hmm. And yet, but this would have been part of the lore there. And there were other things, too, as far as how all this happened. Originally, there would be like a special day, like the seventh day of the month or something that people would come and they could consult the oracle. Mm -hmm. But you couldn't just walk in and consult the oracle or stand in line or whatever. You had to bring offerings, you had to undergo a purification before you could enter the sanctuary, they would have you put on special robes, you would go in there, but you couldn't even go in until the sacrificial goat had been sprinkled with water from the spring. And if the goat didn't shiver or shake off the water, that was an omen, this person is not getting to, their, their offering is not accepted, they're, they're hmm. not going to see the oracle today. And there are a couple stories about powerful men because this is a thousand year long tradition. So we don't know very much about the early epoch of where this began or how it began under the auspices of Great Mother Gay. But later on, you have generals and emperors, Alexander the Great and various other figures coming and coercing the Pythia and trying to force her to prophecy for them. And so in one of these stories, the, the, uh, the Pythia actually, it, this is, the convulsion story seems to dovetail with this, that, you know, she, she, she refuses because the omens were not proper. The, the protocol is saying, no, you can't prophecy for this person. And then they forced her and then she died. So that's another tale. This is all yeah. very, very layered. Right. Yeah. Uh, and I'm guessing, I'm
0: guessing they would take that as a bad omen if she just died. Uh. Yeah. We, we,
2: yeah. You we would think so.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> and, and, and this, this is also partly, you know, what we, all the questions that come to mind, who were these women? This is the hardest thing to discern. Yeah. Where did they come from? Probably local women from the area around Delphi, but you just have to wonder what kinds of village traditions existed. It's like, how were they? How were they chosen? How were they chosen? How were yeah. they trained? How how are they determined? You know, because yeah. usually with these, like in in Southeast Africa, with the uh, Makawana, Ma- Ma- the uh, another oracular woman with a sacred pool in uh, Malawi, the name the country Malawi is actually named after the sacred pool of the rain python. So here's another oracular hmm. python shrine associated with water. Right. But very far away from Greece. And Southeast Africa has a lot of these oracular women. But anyway, um why was I starting to tell you this story? Oh, because the selection. There was a lineage of these Pythias, but it was not a family lineage. There they were chosen by spirit selection. And so when one of the old Makiwanas was either beginning to fade or died or whatever happened and they knew they needed a new one, before long some girl would start having signs of spirit illness. You see the spirit sickness all over the world with entry into, into the shamanic path. And you know they're, they're being afflicted by the spirits as part of the initiatory entry. And so something like that could have been true. In the case of, of Malawi, the community had certain rights and signs that would indicate, is this the right person or not? you know by their responses i don't know really how they did it but they had ways of determining if this was the right one so the signs are coming from the spirit side my guess is that would have been something of that nature would have held true for delphi back so, in the really archaic period you know maybe so even before is, the archaic
0: period sorry so this is common throughout the world these kinds of when uh, looking for these oracular women in different cultures around the world there's some yeah. A natural sign that they're waiting for, not some test of any sort, but just it appears yeah. of its own. Okay. Yeah,
2: and and like for example, the most famously in Siberia, the the shamans, the the early early stages of somebody becoming a shaman, they might appear to be mad. You know, um, very often there there are these these various manifestations, and the person will often avoid human company and go off into the forest and spend long periods of time off in the forest by themselves. And this is part of the pathway, but there always has to be some, well, there's either some kind of formal authentication where the spirits or the ancestors are saying this person, we want this person to be the portal. Or there could be several people who are, you know, putting themselves forward or, or however it happens, you know, being uh, in, in the community who are known to practice in some way. And the test might come in a different form of just, who the community finds to be effective, right? The proof being in the pudding. So that's another way of doing it. I don't think there's any one, it's very rare that you can ever say there's only one pathway, (laughs) how these things happen, right? right? So what we have to envision, one of the things about, one of the traditions about the Pythias is that certain oral, some of the legends indicate that Pythias made certain prophecies about the Trojan War, which would therefore put them before 1200 BCE. Right. All right. So, and and maybe considerably before. Now, you know, how how historical this is, you could evaluate for yourself. But if we count back, just saying the last possible moment for the Trojan War would have been before 1200, but let's just say 1250, okay? And then the Oracle of Delphi was shut down by the Christian Roman emperors at the end of the fourth century. So Indeed. we've got almost 400 years there and we've got 1200. So that's 1600 years plus wow. maybe 1700 years of time that would have this, this would have been in effect. And that's a long time. And there were a lot of changes within that time period because even the Mycenaeans were already in the realm of patriarchy, not as severe as it later became by any means. Cause in, in Mycenaean times you had very powerful priestesses active You know, we can see from the linear B texts and and even the archaeology or the frescoes that they painted. You have the dancing women and you have a very prominent role, the prominent role of the priesthood is being shown as female. Right. So that's happening. Anyway, so after the fall of the Mycenaean Empire, you know, the collapse of the Bronze Age societies all around the Eastern Mediterranean, the Sea Peoples invasions and all of that. Right, right. I would guess that this would have continued. You know, it was already part of the fabric of the culture. There's just no testimony from that period, what they call the Dark Ages, between Mm -hmm. the end of Linear B and the Mycenaean states, and then coming into the archaic period where writing begins to get picked up. You know, you have the Greeks borrowing what they called Phoenician letters. And so written record begins somewhere around 700 BCE. You start to see it, first of all, in etchings on ceramics, you know, just like maybe a few names, not really literature in the form that we know, but, you know, they begin, the literacy comes in and then you have quote unquote Homer, you know, um, the, whatever poets there were that kind of consolidated the epic tradition that comes from the Mycenaean period and survives the, the, the fall of those states there's this whole oral tradition of the bards that mm-hmm. carry forward, this, forward the stories of the Iliad and the Odyssey, the epic cycle entirely. There's other epics most people don't ever hear about, you know, the, the right. Keepers and all the others. And so um, information is carried through about those, for, in, in those traditions and eventually gets written down And people argue about whether Homer was at 700 or 650 BCE and, you know, which island, you know, Miletus or Smyrna or Chios or wherever. But um, through that whole time period, I'm thinking that it would be true that there was a continuation of this oracle and that she was, as the tradition itself says, inspired by Earth Mother.
1: Mm.
2: By Gay, who becomes Gaia in classical Greek.
0: How does the tradition point that out, Max? How does it How does it indicate that?
2: Well, you know, let me look, look. Let me look at the manuscript so I can give you a little more uh, detail on that. Um, sure. What, what am I looking for the answer to again?
0: <laughs> just where? Just the indication of where of of how this is from the Earth Mother.
2: Um, oh yeah. Well, okay. Let me see here. Okay, yeah, well, so Pindar. Ah uh, says that the shrine was sacred to gay and euripides also says that in iphigenia in taurus and so in that play the pythia begins the play starts the pythia is intoning first in my prayer i call on earth primeval prophetess
1: primeval and, prophetess right so right. so the
2: lineage goes like this the oral traditions and this is pretty widespread it's no one source but you know we have these layered sources chronologically layered sources giving different angles of view on this and they're saying that the first prophetess is earth and then her daughter Themis comes in as the second prophetess so these are still goddesses right right and sometimes then phoebe who is a female titanis a titan and in that tradition well that there's a passover with phoebe that i'm gonna come back to but then apollo comes along the main main tradition says that Apollo comes along and overthrows the shrine, takes it over for himself, kills the dragon, either the female dracaina, or later on the main story is that he kills Python, the son of Pitho, Pitho, he kills Pitho the son of Gaia. And Gaia is angry and you know there's this whole this whole thing there. And then Apollo has to do penance for this because he killed a being in the sanctuary, which is considered a form of pollution. Yes. You know, it's, it's a crime. It's a crime to kill somebody, but real, for the Greeks, killing somebody in a sanctuary was even worse. Right. Uh, you know, so that Apollo then has to do uh, penance for a period of time. And there remained a ceremony where a boy would be a stand-in for Apollo and would have to be the one who would do penance for a year and live in the sanctuary and perform certain rites. Okay, so that's a sidebar. One of the stories, just coming back to Phoebe, is that she willingly gives over to Apollo custodianship of the sanctuary. So there they're grandfa- grandfathering him in as a legitimate successor who was peacefully transferred to rather than what most of the traditions say, which is he comes in
1: by brute force and takes it over. A violent and, and through takeover. Murder. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, what about uh, about when um in the stories do we see do we see this mention of Apollo taking the thing over appear? Do you have well, a date okay, on that?
2: Let's, let's go to that. It appears now, now here's one of the things we have to say right off the top is Apollo is a new god for the Greeks. Mm-hmm. He's not ancient. He does not appear in linear B, although one of the forms he takes over, Paion, does. But Apollo has a lot, he's very much linked to Asia Minor. A lot of the estimates talk about maybe the 8th or 7th century as the period of his advent. Okay. And so I think, I can't remember, is it the Hittites or one of the Luvian speakers had a god named Apollunias. Mm. And they, um, there's a lot of different linkages of both Apollo and Artemis to Asia Minor. And of course we have Artemis Ephesia, right? but right. their mother is leto and leto is not really a greek goddess either she is a sort of a titanis lineage who is very much linked to asia minor right and especially to lucia which is the southwestern part of turkey the name meaning wolf and apollo has this wolf aspect as well
0: so and when we talk about asia minor i guess just for the so the listener has an idea because the terms right sometimes unfamiliar we're talking about the area mainly around the black sea and turkey is that correct
2: well asia minor is actually turkey Turkey. and armenia let's not leave out the armenians but you know turkey has taken over most of armenia but yeah that it's it's that that chunk of land not the northern black sea region
0: just that part
2: turkey and and yeah so good just to get the the uh, clarity on that So, and and then there's another part because uh, some of these Asia Minor forms of Apollo are connected to mice and to plagues. So if you remember in part of the driving engine of the story of the Iliad is that uh, there's this wrong, of course, uh, rape and capture, um, rape of captive women is like part of the warfare that we see very clearly going on in the Iliad. Mm -hmm. And so Agamemnon, uh, captures a young woman who from Asia, you know, from the Trojan community, whose father is a priest of Apollo and refuses to return her. And the the, the father comes to the camp prepared to pay a ransom for her, which was the typical method. You know, elite right. people could get their women back if they paid this, or any captive if they paid this ransom, and is insolently refused and sent packing out of the camp and they refuse to give up the captive woman. And so he's a priest of Apollo, so he calls down a curse on the Greeks, and this plague sweeps through the camp.
1: Right.
2: And uh, so this forces the Greeks to their knees, and Agamemnon is forced to give up that captive, and then and Achilles is one of those who's saying, look, you got to do this. All the men are dying. We're going to lose. And so then Agamemnon is particularly pissed at Achilles for this, and so he then seizes Briseis, which is another female captive that has been seized out of Lesbos, I think.
1: Yes. Yeah. And, she was from a prior invasion. Or and, and this is
2: right. Exactly. From one of the other attacking. raids that they did, because yeah. they, they're they're basically pirates, you know, these, these sea raiders. They're part of the Sea Peoples that you read about destroying the whole Late Bronze Age. So then, you know, that's the, the plot engine right there of the Iliad is the refusal of of achilles to fight anymore because his honor has been insulted you know it's not insulted by being a rapist not in this context and so he refuses to fight and the greeks are you know really not necessarily they're not going to win <laughs> and so the whole thing is how do we get achilles back in the fight but right, that's right. that's and the, the, women the are chain just, of events
1: leading up to that right it,
0: it's the women are just
1: playing cards in this game totally
0: yeah
1: yeah, and, yeah so uh, that's just that's just out, oops, go ahead
0: story. no sorry just I wanted to point out that it's interesting how we in modern times sort of whitewash that story where we've got in the I think it's the 2004 Troy so obviously Briseis is this love she's a, a war rape victim yep but in the movie she's like this you know lovely love interest She's just really a no yeah exactly boyfriend. well and it's even just so insane
2: even the Iliad romanticizes it You know, there is no empathy for the women whatsoever inside there. So that then, you know, I mean, they, they have her, actually she's mourning Patroclus more than, than Achilles. When Achilles is killed, she's much more upset about Patroclus because at least he was trying to convince his bud to marry her. That would take her at least out of slave status. She's going to be raped one way or the other. So why not at least not be a slave, you know, get some status. But yeah. So, um, Anyway, that's all just to say that, you know, in terms of the Asiatic connections of Apollo. Now, there's another set of connections, and this is sort of interesting, because there's a legend that Apollo originates, his his takeover of Delphi is dated, well, they don't give really a date to it, but a lot of scholars think this would have been somewhere around the 8th or 7th century. There's a legend that there's a, a bunch of Cretan traders who are heading for Poulos, which is on the southwest corner of the Peloponnese. And they are blown off course. And Apollo, as a dolphin, as I recall, leaps into the uh, boat, into the ship, and tells them, no, no, you're going to, I'm going to make you found a temple. So they sail up the Isthmus of Corinth, going, you know, into that narrow defile there between the Peloponnese and the rest of Greece. And he sails them to the shore where they, Debark and go uphill up into Delphi, and they become his priests. And archaeologically, there's a lot of evidence of Cretan influence in that archaic period, the early archaic of, of Cretan influence. So that's a and, whole that's a whole of, story,
1: right? And of course, uh, longtime listeners of our podcast will know that Crete. Is uh, one of the places that um, that we have speculated the um, matriarchal cultures fled to uh, when uh, when they were being driven out of um, old Europe and and uh, other places where they had they had lived and flourished for many millennia.
2: And we could also say that Crete, it was spared the invasions that were going on in the mainlands because it was at right. sea for right. for a long time so you know it too was hit i mean when you know when you have the mycenaean collapse it had already been invaded by uh, the dorians had you know it took the it took the mainland uh, greeks a while to kind of like they had to invade the indo-european invaders came in waves So they're thinking they came in maybe 2200 BCE, the the Proto-Greeks, the Hellatic people. And there there might have been several different invasions because you have like, you know, the Dorians and the Achaeans and different groups, the Aeolians. These are really regional groups at some point in time. But the Dorians, they are the ones, that language is the one that became the dominant language when the Greeks invaded Crete. But before that, the Indo-Europeans are not notably seafarers. You know, that's something that that happens later. They're really land-based. But when they kill the men and rape rape the women, quote-unquote marry the women, these hybrid cultures, as Maria Gimbutas calls them, arise. And the knowledge of seafaring is there present. Because the Mycenaeans ethnically are made up even more ethnically from the, they're more related to the Cretans than they are to the steppe peoples, but they do have this slice of steppe ancestry. This is what's coming through in the genome evidence now. And yeah, so yeah. they become culturally infected with the patriarchy of the Indo-European culture, even, although they have many aspects of the old culture also, which is why Mycenaean art looks so much like Cretan art. Right.
0: It's, it's interesting because, there, were, yeah, as you point out, there's been a lot of recent studies and the, particularly the around the, the women of Crete, the people of Crete and the connections with the Mycenaean. So, yeah, they're showing that there is that influence of those connections in these both those directions, but you see that showing up now in the genetic.
2: Yeah, because, you know, they used to say about the, the similarity that, you know, maybe they employed Cretan artists or, you know, they were influenced by the Cretans, but now we can see that they were culturally very similar to the Cretans. It's just that they had... The, the elite group, the ruling group, were Indo-European speakers. They, their language was different. The Cretans certainly did not speak an Indo-European language. We don't know what language that was. There's a whole argument about that. Right. But there's this hybrid culture that happens on the mainland where there's this fusion of the older native culture with the early Helladic invaders, and then this gives rise to the situation we see with the Mycenaeans, which is you still have this very strong priestesshood which is not at all characteristic of of the early indo-european cultures but it is of of the the um the native i don't know what to call them we can't even use the word hellen because that's that's the indo-europeans but anyway um yeah so so there's this fusion culture anyway i don't know how we got off oh we were talking about apollo
1: <laughs> Yeah, right. Exactly. When did <laughs> when did Apollo uh, in, you know, in the progress of civilization in the region, when did Apollo, yeah. quote unquote, take over? Right. So, uh, the... you know,
2: we could say 700 as a raw figure, very wide figure, you know, something something in that range, perhaps maybe a little bit earlier. I don't know. And
1: um, were there. Uh, I'm sorry, if you, if you have no, more go, to say. No, go, go. Okay, I'm just curious. And were there other um, other major oracular centers?
2: Yes. Uh, okay. Yes, and many of them also were taken over by Apollo. And there's stories about them. So one of the stories that's, that's very interesting, and this is very close, actually. It's not some of the others I'll talk about in a minute. I'm just trying to see if I can find my notes on it because I might be able to give you a juicy quote. But uh, Apollo comes... He's headed in the direction of Delphi, but first he comes to Trefusa. There's another nymph of the spring. Let me, let me I, just find this. Wow! Again,
1: spring. an association with a spring or yep pool. Yep. Yeah, seems to be associated with oracular sites.
2: Oh hell! Are you going to edit this? Because I'm just trying to find this. <laughs> <laughs> I want to say the it's name. No
0: wor- it. It's no worries. We can. We We'll we'll play mood music while you while you
1: <laughs> while you're shuffling yeah. through paperwork. Yeah,
2: I can't find it because I'm I'm trying to do this fast. You know.
1: Yeah. Well, yeah. anyway,
2: let's just call her Trefusa. I might have to give you an audio clip of the right name if I've got this wrong. It's been a while since I've looked at this chapter. And he comes and he wants to take over her sanctuary, her spring, and make that his temple. And she says, "Well, you know." It's, it's going to be very muddy here. And you'd really be better off up the mountain at Delphi because, you know, people are going to come and their horses are going to trample and your search, your sanctuary will be muddied. And so he, go, he does, he leaves and he goes to Delphi and he takes it over and then he comes back and he says, I'm going to get you too. And you're going to be mine as well. And mm. he takes it over and he fills in her spring. He covers it with with soil and earth, and he, he muffles the spring. So there's there's a whole script of domination.
1: Wow. That, that so goes he, on here. he basically was a bitter jerk.
2: Yeah, very much so. I mean, it's like, <laughs> how awful is that? But there are a lot of other shrines. So there are oracular women at Aegira, And that was a place that uh, was a sub- subterranean cave that the seeress would descend to to speak her prophecies. And this was remaining as an oracular sanctuary of gay, of earth. Okay. Right, and then there is another one, the place called the Gaion, or in Latin, you'll see it sometimes, it's the Gaium of Um I, Gai. I don't know, I'm even sure, it looks like it might be the same word now that I look at this. But um, then there's Larissa, had an oracular shrine there was one a spartan oracle of Pasiphae, and the moon goddess Selene. and this was in near thalami in the spartan territory in laconia and this does not appear to be the legendary queen pacify of crete but another figure uh local people came to identify her with cassandra oh interesting interesting yeah, it's who is said to have died at Thalami and was called pacified because she declared her oracles to all. And Plutarch says it was now said that the oracles brought from this goddess ordained that all Spartans should be on in equality according to the original law made by Lycurgus. Well, that didn't work out well because they instituted serfdom for the majority of the population. Um, it was a nice, it was a nice attempt. And then the, there's there's a variety of uh, oracles of the the in Boeotia, which is uh, north of Athens, uh, the Oracle of Trophonios at Lebadea. and this one is kind of wild because there's a cavern. The oracle was said to have been discovered by a boy who was led there by a bee, or there's different forms of the story. Oh wow! But anyway. These priests take over the oracle. I haven't been able to determine if women were allowed into this or not because it's just there's not enough information about it. And you do see at Delphi women being barred at some point from the oracle.
1: But women being the barred prophetess from, is, the from, prophetess
2: is female, but no, no female consultants according to. Oh, okay.
1: So like you couldn't go and consult the oracle if right. you were a woman,
2: right? Got according it. To this. Although there might have been exceptions, like for the prophetess of Athena in Athens to come there and, and do that. But um, Trophonios is really wild because people would come there and they would have to purify themselves for several days in an outer sanctuary. And they'd bathe in the river Hercuna, which had its own nymph, and offer sacrifices. And there would be readings taken again and the signs are good. Then he would go for one final immersion and they would anoint him. And then he would drink from the well of Lethe of forgetfulness, to clear his mind. And from the well of memory Nemosyne this is the one of the female titans in order to have the power to remember the visions that they were that he was about to have hmm. so they dress him in a special robe and shoes and he goes up into this high cave and then down a ladder and he places his feet in an opening ancient reports say that an invisible force pulls the person into the cave a terrifying experience that precipitated visions so they're basically using cortisol, as far as I can attend, to, to stimulate visionary experiences. Wow. And then the priests pull him back up out through the temple tunnel, place him on the throne of Memosyne, the Titanus of Remembrance, and ask what he had seen. And then they would write down his vision on a tablet. And so there was this proverb, descent into the cave of Trophonios meant a terrifying experience. So that one was a little bit harrowing, but you know, I guess if you really wanted an answer, that was one way to get it. That was
1: a good way to do it, yeah. (laughs) Well, yeah,
2: a good way if you like thrill rides, I guess.
1: (laughs) Well, I'm thinking of you know, they. I love how they wrote down. You know, they ask him to tell his vision, and they write it down on a tablet, which I assume he takes with him. No, they leave them. They leave them in the temple. Oh, they left the as as evidence of the greatness of the oracle. Ah, got it, got it. It just made me think of, you know, the pictures that they try to sell you after you've been on the roller coaster ride.
2: Yeah, this is more in the in the way of it's like, you know, there was the there were no ads in those days. This this was the ad the temple was full of testimonials there for know. the experience they had. So this was it increased the prestige of the oracle. Got it. Got right. It. So there's Trifonius and then there is the Necromanteon, which is I'm trying to find it here now. Uh, it actually means the place of uh, the dead, the, the the place of seership of the dead, right? Wow. So you've got the word necromancy, and this, to right. our minds, you know, calls to mind a magician who does these arcane ceremonies to call up demons and do things, you know, uh, to call up the dead in particular. Right,
1: reanimate dead bodies and things right. like that. Right, you know, kind yeah. of yuck. But there was, in
2: fact, I think what we're looking at here is remnants of ancestor veneration, that were part of the much older culture so this was at a at a place called Ephyra in Epiros so this is way over in northwestern Greece northwestern Peloponnese actually at a place on a hill between where two rivers came together and it dates back to the bronze age with the you know what a cyclope cyclopean architecture is these huge stone blocks that are irregular that are kind of fitted together that that's a very archaic style of Greek architecture and so you go through a processional hall into a labyrinth with many doors and finally into a great chamber underneath that was a vault with multiple burials and there are indications the site was sacred to Persephone mistress of the dead and it was a renowned entrance to the underworld so in the Odyssey the hero goes there to consult with the shade of the seer Teresius Right. Okay. So those are all famous examples, but one very important oracular center is the black doves of Dodona, the Pelei. And there are three female uh, oracles at this shrine. It's mentioned actually in the Iliad. Is it the Iliad or the Odyssey? I forget. Um, One of the Homeric poems. So this again is in Epirus, almost to Albania. And it was way up in a high wilderness mountain, uh, stormy area, and uh, in an oak grove, and they okay. had a perpetual fire. And it was named after the Oceanid nymph Dodone, and it was consecrated to a pair of Zeus and Vione. And these two names, although they don't look alike to us, are both descended for the from the oldest. Proto-Indo-European word for goddess and god. Interesting. So the root devos eventually turns to Zeus in Greek. But in for the female side of it, linear B texts give us diwia, which is a female form of that. And you can see how diwia could have descended from the Proto-Indo-European form, dewa. Right. And then in classical Greek, that becomes leonique. So, you know, you'll often see her referred to as the female counterpart of Zeus. And it's like, well, why is he not the count, male counterpart of the only you know, <laughs> exactly. kind of like make her subordinate in that that way, linguistically. But this is a really interesting thing because this, this Proto-Indo-European root word, dewos or dewa in the feminine form means shining. Oh, and wow. it's from the same root, the word day in English d in latin there's a whole bunch of different you know languages in europe that the words for day and sky are from that same origin are descended from the
1: goddess from the word well for I, I
2: would say that our concept of deity this word deity divinity these are also derived from that root got it okay the concept of divinity is derived from shining from light light mm-hmm. okay so um Anyway, both, both, uh, we have Dione as the goddess who is the protector, but you see the later texts really just only talk about Zeus. And so um, that the oldest accounts to us for Dodona talk about this oak grove. And seers that they call the Seloi. Sometimes you'll see that as Heloi. Quote, who de- dwell with feet like roots, unwashed, and make their beds on the ground. So very earthy, right? Yeah. And Very ascetic, because the seers they don't. It's like they they don't have anything. They don't they don't they don't have They, sleep clothing, in the they don't shoes. They're yeah. living very very close to the earth, and the early sources are talking about their prophetic power as coming from the rustling of the leaves in the oaks and the movements and calls of the pigeons. And so we have Hesiod, uh, which is, you know, very, very late archaic writer, calling the oracle of Dodona, the, the prophetesses, or prophets, acorn eaters. So this is another, this is a very archaic pattern of culture. You know, this is pre-cultivation. So it may be that old because, you know, eating acorn mast is an old foraging food. Right. Yeah. Um, and they lived in the hollow of an oak. So this is from, um, well, this is actually not Hesiod. It's the Ahioi, the, uh, what they call the catalogs of women. And they give prophecy, prophecies to those who bring gifts with good omens. And they prophesy in a shamanic ecstasy. And then according to one source, i got to look this up, afterwards they do not know anything about what they have said. So they're gone. You know, right, it's,
1: it's right. Deity coming straight through them, right? Right. So, so
2: those are the oldest pieces about them. And, and I, I love this
1: idea that they they listen to the rustling of the of yeah. the wind in the trees. Yeah. That the message comes from the sky comes from air, right? From, from wind. From wind. That's yeah, wonderful. yeah.
2: And and wind as spirit, right? Yeah. Right. That, that's again
1: inspiration. Yes. Right. Exactly.
2: Yeah. And 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 the whole idea, the whole thing is wilderness. It's ecstatic. It, there's nothing to do with the power structure as a man. You know, it's just strictly in union with nature. That's right. the source of the inspiration. So then, a little later, we have another layer because they don't talk anymore about the Celoi, and we have instead Herodotus talking about the black doves, and he talks about an Egyptian tradition that Phoenicians had carried off two priestesses of what he calls Theban Zeus and this probably would have been the Oracle of Ammon in the Egyptian uh, oasis of Siwa and well, oh, anyway he sold maybe, maybe it was from Thebes itself Thebes in, in Egypt he sold, sold one of them to Libya and the other in Greece so so that would have been the Oracle at Siwa would be in Libya and then this other one so these
1: were priestesses who were kidnapped and sold into slavery?
2: Yeah. Wow. Yeah. But nevertheless, founded two famous oracular temples of Amun and the Siwa Oasis. And they, they say in Libya, but this is part of what is modern Egypt, the western desert of Egypt. And of Zeus at Dodona. At and so then we have a different description, though. According to Herodotus, he says he got a different description from the actual priestesses, Promenea, Timarete, and Nicandra about their origins. And they say that two black doves flew away from Thebes in Egypt and one of them alighted at Dodona and the other at Libya. And so the one at Dodona perched on an oak and speaking with a human voice told them that there would be an oracle of Zeus. As to the bird being black, they merely signified by this the woman was an Egyptian. And then he says it is certainly true that the oracles at Thebes and Dodona are similar in character. And so they're, they're calling them doves. This is not original. The, we're not even clear, you know, the, when, when Homer talks about seloi, it's a masculine plural ending. Problem is Greek, like all Indo-European languages, has a masculine default. So that could have been women and men, or it could have been only men, right? Right. But uh, then later on, we have only women. You know, we have triad, usually three priestesses. And this is what Herodotus is describing with this pattern. So we don't know if there was a shift that took place there or what exactly
0: happened. Just, to, just again, for clarity, so when you're talking about masculine default in languages, I mean, English, it's not quite the same, but mm-hmm. I think people are familiar with Spanish and some of the romance languages. The, the yeah. plural masculine refers to everybody. Right, uh, like,
2: if you have 99 women and one man in Spanish, French, Italian, whatever the romance languages, you have to use the masculine plural. Exactly. Because there's one male. Males do not want to be referred to in a plural in patriarchal societies that... Includes women. The women have to be subsumed under the man. He uh, outweighs all those 99 women. I've always well,
0: joked about that with people who, I, well, I I say, think they're being very progressive by using a masculine uh, noun for... Of both male right and so it's and like thereby oh,
2: invisibilizing I... if it's a woman or not
0: <laughs> exactly it's like oh i call everybody an actor well you know you could call them all actresses too so but that's yeah.
2: well yeah but see you know that it, it's just like it's it, it gets to be a judgment call because actress has become so overlain with sexualization yeah that actually female actors don't want to use it anymore Oh, and no, I, understand I, know. That. I know. So, yeah. so I mean, I'm going to be doing actually a podcast in the future that is talking about this because I just picked up this old book. I, I had it in my archives for a long time. It was written in the, in the like 1977 or something. And they talk about the way that the S ending came about in English. And there were linguists, you know, male authorities who were insisting that you could not call a woman a doctor. She had to be a doctress.
1: Yeah. right you know, yeah. that sounds
2: very uh, uh old-fashioned to our ears right poetess so feminists usually want to say poet actor but there are certain exceptions and i make the exception i don't want to say priest for a woman i want to say priestess because it has a different valence which has it, not been over sexualized as some of these other words have been
0: it, it is interesting i mean I, I i hear what you're saying, and I. It, it, absolutely makes sense it's just interesting to me though yeah that we don't think about the fact that we're choosing i'm not talking about from the feminist standpoint but yeah, yeah. usually from the male standpoint of wanting right. to seem progressive by saying i'm going to be progressive by letting my default language say you're just like me as opposed to i'm just like you yeah
2: exactly and and you make a good point and i really agree with you on in the instance you raised because i i mean i've seen people use priest as a default and then that basically it de-sexes the term for women, but it actually maintains the masculine assumption exactly. that is around priest. And that
1: is and three hundred years from now, when they're looking back and they see, you know, this was an Episcopal priest, uh, you know, Julie Smith, they're going to say, oh, well, that must have been a man because they're using the word priest. So right. there well, couldn't you know, have been any women priests. Right? Well,
2: yeah. I mean, it just it just gets all tangled up. And, you know, there's the, one of the sources I've been using for my book. He insisted on. So he thought he was being very cool by using the word priest for females. He thought that was a more egalitarian approach. But then it becomes necessary because of the sexual politics of the story he's telling. It is necessary to designate. Is this a female priest or not? Right. So right. he keeps using the word woman priest. But he uses priest. He doesn't say man priest. You right. see, so it is still the masculine default, and the female is an exceptional, special case.
0: Yeah, right? exactly. With a lot of these, and we, it uh, just
2: drove me crazy.
0: Well, we have a gag. Dawn and I have a running gag about the male matriarchs. So that's a whole other, whole other Not thing only about. that,
1: but you know the male goddesses. The male goddesses, exactly.
0: <laughs> so, right. Anyhow.
1: Uh, yeah, you know, uh, men, men aren't having it most men are not having that, Even you
2: know, it's like, this is one of the things, it's sort of like the old football team team mentality, anything that associates them with women, they're going to like get their backs up about it, you know. It, and, it
0: is, it's a very, I mean, not to go from those, it is a very deeply entrenched thing, because it affects, I can tell you, it affects all guys, it's not something that, yeah. I mean, we're just the culture we live in, you're just not okay with it.
2: Yeah, no, you're going to lose status, you're going to be ragged mercilessly, you know, there are ways, and, you know, that's where you see really how the socialization takes place, you know, that, yeah. of, of being uh, ridiculed in that way. Yeah, yeah so anyway, yeah, priest. <laughs> so uh, what was I going to say, though, about...
1: Um, so we were talking of... about the doves, the three doves. Yeah. And the temples that they founded. The yeah, Arachians yeah. I mean, I, I, I
2: thought I was going to say something else about the celloid, but I, I can't remember what it was now. Um, anyway, so we have some later sources. You know, we're looking at 1st uh, or 2nd century sources like Pausanias and Strabo who talk about the extreme antiquity of these Pelei or Peleades, the dove women, is exactly what they're referring to that there. And Strabo says they predated the Delphic oracle, Femenoe, and Pausanias calls them the first women to chant the verses. Gay sends up the harvest, therefore swing the praise of gay as mother. So earth is again being brought in here as oracular deity in a way, or at least invoked. Right. And then Pausanias writes about the oracles given by the doves at Dodona and describes them as old women. And one of them foretold the Celtic invasion of Asia Minor a generation before the event took place. So this is the Galatians invading Turkey. So Strabo is saying the Peleades drew auguries from observing three sacred doves. And so in that region, he says, they called old women Pelei. So the title meant elders as well as doves. And so Strabo says, and perhaps the much-talked-of Peleades were not birds, but three old women who busied themselves about the temple. Which is a little pejorative, I would say.
1: Busied themselves? themselves. Yes, yes. Not ran, not managed, (laughs) not 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 presided over. over. (laughs) Right, held sway over, but rather busied themselves. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. there's, there's,
2: There's a last part here about Dodona is that, you know, it's original fame, the sound wrestling trees we talked about, were they were likened to eloquent tongues. Oh, nice. Later on, they suspended copper cauldrons from the trees, which resounded as the wind blew, striking them together like gongs. And so there was a proverb about the copper vessel in Dodona, referring to some kind of prophetic voice. And then even later on, maybe this was in Hellenistic times, they added two pillars. One had a statue of a boy holding a scourge, and the other had a bronze cauldron. And when the wind blew, little bones at the end of the scourge would strike the cauldron and emit long
1: tones, which were supposed to have prophetic import to them. Similar but, to a gong or a yeah, singing bowl. where you using exactly. sound, sound as divination. Yeah. Yeah.
2: So we do know that women could and did consult the Oracle of Dodona. And a lot of the, it was not, it was not a centrally located site the way that Delphi was, where you had people traveling from all over the Eastern Mediterranean to consult, and even the Central Mediterranean, to consult the, the Pythia. You know, powerful people. Whereas Dodona was much more about people's everyday lives. So there's a lot of, uh, you know, they, they have inscriptions there also about the questions people ask and the answers. And, you know, will I conceive a child? And, and different things like that are among the questions.
1: That's so, fascinating. And, and the, the incredible um, length of history associated with these sites.
2: Yeah the the long uh, through line of history really you know that's that's a lot of time there especially if Dodona is even older than Delphi so we could put it back you know well into well into time you know maybe two thousand BCE already so that's Dodona has nothing to do with Apollo but then we do have more uh, female oracles that were asset Delphi taken over by Apollo. And these are in Western Anatolia, so maybe they were originally associated with Apollo. Um, but we have one at Patara in Lycia, the Oracle of Claros, which is up in Ionia, I think, and Didyma, maybe Caria, um, and and so these are in what's now Western Turkey. And one of them at Patara is the priestess who delivers the oracles is shut up in the temple during the night, so. She's receiving her prophecies through dream incubation. Do you know what this mm. is? You go with an intention. You do some kind of ceremony. You stay overnight in the temple. And then you dream the answer. Right. So um, that's interesting. So then, okay, we come to Claros and Deduma. Uh, they there in Eastern Asia Minor. Sorry, Western Asia Minor. And there again, Claros oracle arises from a sacred spring and cave near Colophon. It was already a sacred site in the ninth century. So this is even pre-Homeric. Wow. There was a circular stone altar there around 650 BCE. And then a larger rectangular one added when a temple to Apollo was built there. So, um, you know, iffy about his original... Uh, sponsorship of that temple, but legendarily, he said to have sent the prophetess Manto, whose name means prophetess, into exile from Greece, and she had been taken captive out of Thebe by the Thebes, as they would say it, but Thebe is the Greek, and that she she gets brought to Delphi. She and her sister, in some other stories, and then Apollo. Uh, you know, Paul's having sex with everything in sight, practically, so you know, there's that <laughs> whole part coming in. But he decides he's going to send her as a missionary to go over into a Colophon and, and found this Oracle of Claros. And so that implies that he was not the original deity, in fact, that it actually came from the Hellenic side. But anyway, they say that her tears created the spring under the temple. And then later so accounts say that her son Mopsos was the founder of Claros.
1: So there does seem to be this sort of, um, this tradition of priestesses from one oracle going, going distances to found other oracles. To some extent. You're referring to Dodona there? Yeah. hmm yeah, and then yeah, that's this one you instance. just mentioned, mm-hmm. yeah, is another sure. instance of that. And in both cases, under coercion. Yes. Yeah.
2: <laughs> so that's, I mean, you know, this is, I mean, when we're when we're looking at this, both the Bronze Age and the Iron Age, these are not peaceful times, You right. know, and the taking of female captives and women being dragged from one continent to the other is happening. So that's some of the historical background to it. But what happens though at Claros is, though, although mythically. The foundation is by manto later accounts say that her son mopsos is the founder and then she's basically supplanted by a male uh, mythically and then it becomes a male oracle at claros hmm. and but you still have the omphalos stone there so very much along the model of delphi and they're also drinking water from the spring
1: and uh, just for our listeners, the Omphalo Stone? Is the navel stone. There's a stone that was
2: supposed to be at Delphi, which was in some way connected to Pitho, to the to the serpent deity that was the son of, of Gaia, and it, the navel of the earth. So at Delphi, the saying was that there were two eagles that wanted to find the center of the earth, and one flies from the east, one flies from the west, and they came together at Delphi. And that was where the Umphalo
1: stone was placed in order to, to show that was the navel of Earth. To indicate that that was the navel of the Earth, the place, of course, where the child and the mother are connected. Right. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah, so uh, they have that also at Claros. Now, if we go to Deduma, which is not that far away, uh, still in Asia Minor, we have female oracles again, also under Apollo, as I recall. And they also have a shamanic dimension to them because we see some sources referring to them as the grunters.
1: The grunters? Yeah.
2: So it's like, <laughs> you know, it's kind of that kind of deep belly chanting. Nice. And uh, so again, they're, they prepare f- with, for prophecy in this same way of doing purifications, fasting, and sacrificing for three days then descending down into the chamber of the sacred spring. And she drinks from the water. Some say she places her feet in the spring or that she wets the hem of her robe. And she sits down on a cylindrical stone axon, breathing water vapor from the sacred pool while a choir sang. So you have this music to um, stimulate the trance state. And she holds a sacred laurel wand that, according to a Neoplatonist writer that was, you know, quite late in the day, holding a sacred laurel wand that filled her with divine light. And so Herodotus says, well, this, Herodotus says, the Temple of Diduma predated Greek colonization of Asia Minor. And they add a building around the sacred spring in the 700s and then a portico around 600. And so, um, you know, then this is also described as having been found by some aristocratic man with a Hellenistic name. So, there, are, you know, these layers to the story. Right, right. So anyway, those those are some of the prophetic women. We don't have very many names for the Pythias, going back to Delphi. Just the title oh, Trufosa. itself. Truphosa is the name Oh, no, that's a Dijima priestess. Never mind. So we, do have, <laughs> okay. we do have these names, Themenoi Xenoclea, Themistoclea, Aristonike, Clea, and Herophile. And especially Herophile is probably the most famous name uh, in many of the stories. She is the first Sybil who prophesies at Delphi and also in certain parts of Asia Minor. But the, the thing is we know very, very, very little about who these women were. Yes that, And who they were varies. We, we, was, we have some accounts like for Plutarch where he's saying, well, you know at one time, you know there were they were young virgins, but they had to be that had to be changed because some man came along and raped one of them. and then after that they had it be an older woman who was past menopause. And other stories in the late period apparently was thought very prestigious to become the Pythia. So you have aristocratic women coming in, but other accounts speak of a young woman who is, you know, she could be of a very, like a villager background. Right. You know, which I think would have been the original pattern anyway.
1: Right. Local people who who were called by the goddess, as it were, Mm -hmm. or by the spirit of the the oracle.
2: Much more in line with the...
1: You so know the the original tradition. Yeah. So, I I I'm guessing I know the answer to this question, but um, these oracles have, are no longer in, you know, are uh, practicing in service. Uh, right. What ended? What ended? What closed them down? What shut them down? The Christian emperors of Rome. There we go. Yeah. 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 yeah so it all became, the temples.
2: Yeah. In, it became in, the, a in the competition. Yeah. I mean, somewhere around 325, Constantine never officially converted because I think he was afraid he'd lose his imperial throne if he did so. But he was already beginning to make interventions on behalf of Christians and even institutionalizing the Christianity in certain ways. But after his death, then very quickly, you have this move to Christianize the Roman Empire. And that goes on all through the fourth century C.E., by the 390s, it's getting really bad. It's kind of like a step-by-step process. Mm-hmm. And so Theodosius is closing temples left and right, and they're turning temples into stables in order to desecrate them, or they're demolishing them and reusing the the marble for other buildings, for churches. Sometimes churches are built right on top of temples. The right. Parthenon gets taken over and turned into a church of Mary, you know, um, there's there's all these things going on, and so the I forget if it's Theodosius who closes who shuts down the
1: Oracle of Delphi. Yeah. So you know perhaps part of the reason why we know so little about mm-hmm. these oracular women is because I would imagine that when these these temples uh, were shut down, that the rec- any records associated with them would yeah. probably have been destroyed.
2: Yeah, and I think that there's there's multiple sources for, I mean, multiple reasons for that, because certainly the, the Imperial Christian uh, Roman Empire was very much into destroying pagan things. They destroyed a lot of statues. They melted down as much of the bronzes as they could. They burned a lot of texts. Justinian the and East, the, the Eastern Emperor, the Byzantine Emperor, uh, specialized in book burnings and destroying shrines. And so all of those forces were going on. But even then, it didn't end there. It continued in following centuries. And there were other wars and invasions. The Seljuk Turks come into Asia Minor. They probably didn't care anything much about paganism, but they convert to Islam. And so then you know, there are just these multiple layers of repression that result in the destruction of Hellenic literature to a large extent. And a lot of what, you know, if we try to find Sappho, her verse, a lot of it has been recovered in middens. There's a site, I don't know really how you say Oxyrhynchus, I'm not really sure how it's pronounced. But there's a site like 100 miles south of Cairo, where there was a huge garbage heap. And they start, some Englishmen came like 100 years ago and started excavating it. And they found all these papyri, which had survived. Wow. Often very fragmentary there and that included some of the works of sappho various other works uh, other cases where you have palimpsests do you know what that is where they take an old piece of um uh, an old written text very often on vellum which is expensive to produce and they simply scrape it and then they write over it and so in the 20th century they were able to use special photographic techniques to bring forward what was underneath because you have Christian texts literally superseding whatever was there behind it. Right, right.
0: I've always I've it's been sort of a dream fantasy of mine to be able to uncover, you know, so much of the lost works. And so wondering where they would be, you know, I know they're doing stuff at uh, Herculaneum and Pompeii and trying to see mm-hmm. if they can use modern computer technology right. to see what's in those charcoal scrolls and unfurl them in some way. Mm-hmm. But yeah, garbage dumps, mm-hmm. lost libraries, that's where we're gonna hope to find um, mm-hmm. many of these lost works. Uh, I wonder what, just as we as we come to the end, what would you want to leave the listener with about these women and about this um, this uh, lost status. This, tradition. This yeah. tradition, exactly. What would you want to leave them with?
2: Well, it's it's just the ability to envision what a world would have looked like, and especially before Apollo comes in, where you have prophetic women going into ecstasy and prophesying. There are endless testimonies to the accuracy, as well as often the inscrutability of the, the prophecies of the, of <laughs> right. the Pythias. Um, I, I, it's just something to meditate upon of what that would have looked like, that you have to climb up this mountain. You know, you're going along a probably a dirt pathway and there is this shrine, and you're to immerse yourself in the water and to clothe yourself in these fresh wool robes and you know, perform prayers and sacrifices and get led down into the Holy of Holies where the priestess is there seated on her tripod. And to hear whatever, you know, you, you're given a prophecy and then you have to figure out what it means. You know, it's not like, yes, you, you should, you know, the answer to your question is you must do this, that, and the other. I mean, sometimes she will say the things you, you, are supposed to do, but it, a lot of times it's, it's notoriously difficult to decipher sometimes the meaning, but the meaning is always, is always correct. Eventually the truth of it will be, uh, will come
1: all well, out. Yeah.
2: Right. Yeah. But you know, it's just, I think it's a precious remnant for anyone of European descent to see that such priestesshoods existed, especially to visualize what they looked like before this this male overseer administrative priesthood comes in. I mean, they never were the prophets. There have been attempts to say that they must have interpreted the prophecies to people, but there's no evidence for that, you know, and they would record it for sure. So there's layers to look at and I think that one of the things we have to understand is those layers, but I think what a lot of us really want to know is what is the flavor, the melody of that most ancient layer when the sanctuary was in the reverence of Gay, where it's on earth, it's on the mountainside, it's next to this water coming out of the rock. You know, it's a place that's just immersed in animacy and this is where the transmission of guidance and truth comes forward. This is where inspiration, this is the fount of inspiration, or for that matter, the wind and the trees at Dodona. And you have these people who are the prophetic presence there. They're the conduits for it. They are not living in, you know, luxury. and They're living on the land. They're in communion with the fortunes of nature. And so this is something we have to get back in touch with you know is to find the source to find our way back to the source
1: for guidance because goddess knows we need it yes we in do these times yes we do and and the thing that uh, that strikes me about this is that as long as we have been homo sapien sapien we have been we have always searched for messages from our creator. We have always searched for answers from Mm -hmm. the spiritual realm as to how to live um, a good life, a a right life, Mm -hmm. um, a spiritual life. And that this was was the way it was done for millennia, for millennia on end. This was how we tried to reach through the veil um, to to receive some sort of wisdom, or guidance from the Creator, who, at the very beginning, was was the earth, was our earth mother. Yes, the goddess
2: and And that's something that that continued, was still going on. In southeastern Africa, when the European colonials came with missionaries and shut all those sanctuaries down, the pool of Malawi and all the rest of them. Right. So, you know, there's. it's not only in ancient times. There are some parts of the world where those ways of being and knowing continued.
1: And still continue.
2: Well, some of them do still continue. I mean, you know, the Presbyterians pretty much put paid to the Makewana tradition (laughs) but yet you know with you're right because like in zimbabwe you still have prophetic women there was a woman that was called the voice of god you know this is a translation of whatever the shona term was and uh you know who was like the ultimate religious authority another oracular woman and that institution was was killed by the english colonials by the rhodesians Mm. but nevertheless within families and this is a patriarchal society too but there's this female sphere of power, uh, especially the brother's aunt. I mean, the brother's sister, uh, who uh, was called, I forget the name for her. There's a, there's a title for her that um, very often becomes uh, a, a spirit medium and is that same kind of conduit to the sacred.
1: Nice. Well, Max, we could talk to you all day, every day because you are such an amazing font of information and knowledge. <laughs> indeed, indeed. And not surprisingly, we uh, did not get to the second part of what we were going to talk about today. As I prophesied. We, 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 yes, As you exactly. prophesied, exactly. So uh, you're just going to have to come back on the program. Yeah, we'll come back and, and talk more. That sounds
0: wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Max Dashu, for joining us today. Thank you. Yes, and thank you, Dawn, for your insights as always. Um, And
1: you as well,
0: Sean. This has been the 34 Circe Salon, Make Matriarchy Great Again. We've been talking about Oracular Women, Pythias uh, with Max Dashi. Thank you all for listening. We will be back again with you soon.
1: Take care, everyone, and blessed be.